Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, I'm Greg Daniels. I was the showrunner of The Office. Hello, everyone. It's me. That's right. Your trusty host, Brian Baumgartner, and you are listening to The Office deep dive. Thank you for joining me once again. Today, I am very pleased to bring you part two of three of my conversation with Greg Daniels. Now, th- think of this as the second act of a three-act play. If Greg's interview were the Lord of the Rings, and, and it was almost as long as that trilogy, then this would be The Two Towers which my producer has instructed me to say is definitively the best one. Anyhow, by now, many of you know that Greg was the creator and showrunner of The Office. And what that means is, in addition to doing a bunch of other things, the showrunner is basically the head of the writer's room, which is why I wanted to save this part of Greg's interview until now as the official start of our mini deep dive on the writing of The Office. I'm very excited to kick this series off with Greg, talking about all of his theories on comedy writing, insights into the writer's room itself, and how they came up with so many great storylines. Also, towards the end of this episode, we have a special cameo appearance by Ben Silverman, our executive producer and the guy who initially hired Greg to run the show. It was so fun to have them together in the studio. A little hectic, but fun, Uh, and it's always fun and educational to listen to Greg. So, without further ado, let's dive in with Greg Daniels. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning left over from the night before. So Mike talked about that you talked about a writing staff and assembling a writing staff. Um, and and you described it as being like X-Men, right? That you didn't want writers who would could all write the same. Yeah. I think I called it as, as a baseball team. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Not that I'm, you know, so much more jockey or anything, <laughs> but 
the the idea that you can't get all pictures. You know, somebody somebody has to be really good with story. Somebody has to be really good with jokes. And um, you know, I always feel like the story people should be in charge. And they talk about shows jumping the shark. And a lot of times, what I think why they jump the shark is because the original writing staff has the more senior people being really good at character and story and the younger people being good at jokes. And then three years in, the senior people have left to do their own shows. Right. And the younger people are now the senior people and it all gets really jokey. But yeah, so I, I mean, that first, that first staff, the first person I hired for anything on the whole show was BJ. And, um, and you hired him to do both immediately. Yes, he was a writer performer hire. Yeah, and uh, Mindy also, and I saw her do her stage show Matt and Ben, mm -hmm. and then I read her script, and I would have met with her off either one of them, and the two of them was a great combo. Paul, I had worked with on King of the Hill. Who else was that first year? Well, there was Mike. Oh and then yeah, shortly, obviously Mike. Yeah. Mike had a lot of similar background to me. Like he was coming off SNL yes. and um, was uh, intellectual, yes, with a big brain and a similar haircut. <laughs> so I definitely, we definitely vibed. Right. Some of the writers talked about um, <laughs> both from Lee and Mike. This is how they summed it up. So you can respond or disagree that Lee and Gene were that they were really into or they excelled at the cringe comedy factor. Yes. That Mike was more optimistic. Yeah. That Mindy was more absurdist. And juicy. And juicy. Yes. Mindy was very good at finding actual conflict and actual romance between people. She was like absurdist, but, but also juicy writer. Mm -hmm. um, that Paul was very, very into Michael's worst instincts. Yeah, Paul's really psychological, okay. very arty and very into psych psychology and Michael's brain. And that Jen Salata was very tied into Pam. That I would disagree with. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't, um, God, I don't feel she was that. I mean, I feel like when I think about Jen, I think about Michael's stories. I think about like uh, the funeral for the bird and stuff like that. And she, another person, super into the psychology of Michael. Jen's, Jen's fascinating. Jen is like child of JPL physicist people, very brainy. Like all of her work after the office is like formally interesting. Like she has a screenplay where every scene is from a different year of a guy's life. And she's now doing this animated show about trees. The protagonists are trees. And, you know, she always like sets something really difficult for herself. Like you're going to do a movie about all the characters are rooted in the same spot. <laughs> Go. <you laughs> right. <know? right. clears throat> but I, I guess he was doing Pam. Well, it's interesting that you both referenced the same episode with Michael and the bird. And from your perspective, it was it was Michael's story. And what Mike talked about was that it was Pam facilitating this for Michael mm. that ultimately made yeah. it an important moment. So yeah. it's just funny that you but both- I remember like Jen on the white, I don't know if Mike referenced the whiteboard, but Jen no, was No, what's in, the whiteboard? Well, okay. So, so the writer's offices, right? We had, we were in the building that- played as their office building and Michael's office on the second floor was one of the writer's offices. And, you know, we just dressed the one wall that faced the parking lot. And then there was a trailer in the parking lot behind it where we had the table readings. And that was like sometimes a room that the writers would go to when they had to work something out. And that episode was a very um, tricky episode because Michael did not know what the story was. Michael was in complete denial that he was really upset that the guy who had his job uh, had died and nobody cared in the office. Like he right. didn't, but he wasn't aware that that was the story and he fixated on the bird and nobody knew what the story was until Pam figured it out. But anyway, it's hard to write that. It's unusual because a lot of times we would use these talking heads to announce what the story was. You know, it would be like, 
today is diversity day right. and you right. know, guys right. coming in to, t- you know, whatever. <laughs> and, um, so Jen went into that trailer and we came in and it looked like she was tracking a serial killer. She had like all these lines and, you know, <laughs> diagrams on the whiteboard. And it was all about in every moment, what does Michael think is happening? What is really happening subconsciously? It was like a very complex story. But that's that's my like most classic gen moment to me. Right. Well, the variety, I, I've been told that this wasn't intentional. You were looking for the best people. You were looking for specific matches. But one of the things that you did was by hiring people with such diverse backgrounds, even in acting, right? So on the writers, you were looking for writers with different skills. But on the acting side, you know, myself and Rain, essentially, we were straight theater guys. That's true. And I was doing mostly drama. And then you had, you know, Steve and Angela and uh, Oscar who were like improv guys. And you had- How did you get so good? That's the part I don't understand. You also used to do something that was so useful- I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but we would have these scenes and you need a button. A button? Yeah. I'm so proud that you said this. Yes. You've never said this to me before, oh, really? but I thought, go ahead. Yeah, I'm glad that it was good. Like, obviously it was intentional, but we would get into these scenes and they'd be funny scenes and there was no point to edit. And we were like, how do we get out of the scene? And then we'd be like, Kevin, Kevin's done something. And we go, yep, there he is. I'm very proud of that. He's I'm very banged into the wall on his way out. That's the end point. Well, and that, I mean, again, that goes to the ensemble that was being created. I mean, Randall in the beginning, yes. But then certainly as we went on and it was way more Matt Sohn as the camera guy, he I would I would look at him. And I would give him, it was like, <laughs> it was like a quarterback, right? Yeah. Who, who, who gave a nod to the wide receiver, like the ball's coming your way. Like, yeah. go. and at the end of the scene, he would whip that camera around. Cause I had something that I was going to do oh, that's and awesome. to try to find some end. Well, thank you so much for saying that. Oh, you it's saved finally, us. You saved us so often. And it's, it's great because you wouldn't know, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't on set all the time. Right. I mean, the, the 28 episodes, you, I had to be in the editing room a ton of time and or, writing or new with episodes. the writers. Yeah. And so a lot of times I would miss some of the fun on set and then, you know, you'd be in the, in the depths and the, with me and, you know, Dave in this room in the middle of the night and <laughs> oh, please God, please. Did Brian do anything? <laughs> and you always saved the day. It was oh great. my God. That's so awesome. Um, so how do you feel like diversity day helped created our version of the show? And was it important to you at that time that that we look at issues of social relevance? Or again, was it just because it was funny? Oh, well, you know, the first season, a lot of them were great topics. And I remember saying to everybody after we wrapped the pilot, I was like, I had such a great time doing the pilot. And I was, I remember saying to everybody, if this is all we get, I'm happy. We did a great job. And I remember saying that after the first season, I, I you know, said that pretty much every season for a long time. It was, it was great fun. And in the beginning, it didn't look like we were going to be on for very long. Right. So you, you know, you took what joy you had. Right. Um, but definitely when we got five episodes for season one, I know I had the feeling of, well, let's make these five count. You know, let's say what we can say with this show in case this is all we get. Let's, you know, do our best. And in adapting it, I felt that all the themes of the show, how how Michael would put his foot in it and everything, like when you try and bring that to America, race relations is the big thing that he would do, you know? It's like our our history of slavery and race relations and civil rights and everything, it's just more present in American culture, I think. There's a few interesting differences. Like, for instance, in England, for whatever reason, ambition is looked at very poorly. Like how Jim was, was, didn't seem too ambitious. That was a way they were signaling the English audience that he was super likable. Okay. But it's different in America. And so, like, I think a lot of times people are more like, well, if he doesn't like his job, why doesn't he, why doesn't he move? Or get his shit together. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. right. You know? And so, interesting. yeah, so that was something that, that we had to adjust and stuff, but diversity day was really big 
it was the first time we were like on our own. We're not looking at any British scripts and really wanted to set up the characters properly. And since it seemed like of all topics, and I use this term, er story, uh-huh. you are, I don't know where it comes from. It kind of means like the root story, like the most representative one. And like for me on King of the Hill, it was um, Hank's unmentionable problem. If you, if you know that one where he's constipated and he has to go in and have a yes, colonoscopy, yes, yes, <laughs> it yes. seemed like of everything that Hank was, the fact that people were talking about his constipation would be the <laughs> worst to Absolutely, him. right. <laughs> you right, know? right. And so the Diversity Day was kind of like an attempt to find that, that super representative story of like, how is Michael going to step in at the worst? And we worked out a lot of interesting things with Diversity Day because <clears throat> the first time that it was broken, it was in chronological order and it took place, I believe, over a couple of days. And then we were like, eh, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. You know, it, it feels more docu to be in one day. So we kind of had this flashback aspect to it where we we started the story on, it's today's diversity day and a guy's coming to train us. And then we found out, oh, they're training because a couple of days ago you did this thing. Right, right, right. We, right. we kind of flashed it back. And then with the Pam and Jim of it, I had said to BJ, Here's what I want. Uh, something like this. Something like he has a terrible day and they're in this horrible, boring meeting and she falls asleep and her head falls on his shoulder and it's this precious memory for him. And then she wakes up and it was just this little thing, but it tur- totally turns his day around. I was like, try and find something like that. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and when he came back with the outline, he used that. And he was like, I, I tried. I couldn't find anything better than that. I thought that was good. Um, you know, and it was sort of like something that people had personal, you know, it just felt very relatable. And that was something I, I also felt was a feature of Seinfeld was observational yes. stuff. Like really connecting with people by noticing a moment that everybody's had but hasn't been done to death before. And I felt like that was a good one, like like somebody that you liked who kind of leaned on you or something. Right. And um, and then we had um, Tom Huang was our writer's assistant. He was the one who suggested the thing with the cards. Okay. Because he had had that happen to him in some, some training okay. thing. And we were like, yep, we'll take that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really great episode. I mean, I... I, it's hard to imagine, like we did 201 episodes, but the second one might've been the best. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, it's hard to find many that are, that you could say are better. It's, yeah. it, it, it's always amazing to me when people, they say one of two things, like one, like, oh, I didn't like it in the beginning, but then it, it caught on. It was too, and then you mentioned diversity day and they're like, oh yeah, that's, and that was, that was yeah. the second one. Yeah. I think that, cause I, I mean, pretty much everything I like or have had. I've worked on has had the same sort of trajectory. Like certainly it was the case with Parks and Rec, but um, it's character comedy. And if you're going to make the choice to do that Jack Benny thing of your money or your life and not just have a guy stand there and tell the setup and the punchline in the same line, right? If you're going to go with character comedy, you got to learn who the characters are. Right. And the audience has to figure it out. And, um, that takes some time. So they always tend to start slow. They don't start with a bang usually. So I wasn't thrown or worried when it started slow. Right. But there is a difference between season one and season two. Well, so that was my next question. So I, um, you felt like, to my understanding, all of the writers disagreed with you. But after the 40-year-old version and seeing Steve... And seeing him in a new way and when what his sensibility was that you needed to change, Michael. That was a part of it for sure. But like, you know how I said the the goal with the pilot was could we even produce something that looked like the office? Right. Right. It was a production type of deal. So then going into season one, it was like, okay, can we write the office? Can we write stories that are like this and are just as good, but not use the British scripts or anything like that. And then I think we achieved that, but then we didn't have very good ratings. <laughs> right. And Kevin was really a fan of the show, 
And the middle management at NBC were fans of the show too, which was really funny because I, I went to like whatever the upfronts, the things where they yes. would present it. And all the middle management would come and tell me how much they loved it. And they would point to the senior management as being Michael Scotty. Like you could say, was, you know, <laughs> you could tell like they were feeling oppressed by people, uh, not Kevin, but other people in the, in the structure. But anyway, it was really hard to get picked up. And Kevin said, okay, Greg, you have to come in and pitch me how you're going to change it. Because it has to change. You can't do the same thing season two as you did season one. And I'm not sure exactly where I was. I feel like I might have been on vacation or something, but I wrote on a napkin. I tried to come up with things that would rehabilitate Michael. And also I realized that I had been treating the office like everything I had learned on King of the Hill didn't count. It was a new show and it was like artier or whatever. And then I realized, uh, no, everything I learned on King of the Hill is still valid and the thing with King of the Hill was when that show started, Hank wasn't very likable. Like I, I kind of came in and had to rewrite that show a certain amount and create a situations where Hank would be able to be kind of conservative, but in a likable way. So a lot of the other characters are there to make him more likable and appropriate. Right. You know? And so for instance... He has his niece there so that he can be very Boy Scouty. And you know what I mean? Right. Be like, oh, yeah. You know, don't don't show me all your under under things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, and, you know, his his dad is way over the top horrible. Yeah. So that he's kind of, you go, oh, well, poor Hank. I mean, that's where he came from. You know, exactly. Yeah. He's doing his best. Right. You know, So there was like little tricks like that to try and kind of normalize and center the character, right? And so I come back in with this napkin and it had all these beats that I felt we could create a show around. Like for instance, the idea that, okay, his team feels very oppressed by him and is always rolling their eyes at him. But if an outsider criticized him, they'd back him up. So that became the Dundies, right? Where- Everybody's enjoying making fun of Michael's award show, but when when people who don't work there start like heckling him and throwing stuff, they kind of rally around him. Yes. And one of them was Michael should give somebody really good advice at some point. And so that became Booze Cruise where he's like handcuffed to something and he tells Jim not to give up ever and to still go after Pam. And I knew people really wanted Jim to do that. So to hear Michael kind of turn Jim and make him stay the course, you really like Michael. Right. Uh, And there's other examples of it, right? But like, oh, good at his job. And you realize, okay, he's not a great manager, but he's a really good salesperson. You know, he's like everything that makes him a bad manager, his caring what other people think and his changeability and everything and desperate need to be liked makes him a really good salesperson. So it became more like the Peter principle, like he'd been promoted past his level of expertise here, but that wasn't so bad. Right. And then, you know, like seeing him with kids, like Halloween, the ending of Halloween. Yes. To see him desperately want to have a friend at work, but you can't because you're the boss and you have to fire somebody and just be so bummed out and then just light up when the kids come trick-or-treating and everything. Right. Yeah, things like that. And we kind of turned the boat on him. And, uh, you know, that was a different show after that. Mike told me that there was a lot that basically all the other writers disagreed with with you about changing it. The idea being, um, you were right, by the way, but the (laughs) the idea, the idea being like, no, we're doing this special show, and if we burn into a blaze of glory, that's fine, but we're going to keep, you know, that idea. And you- And you said, no, we're doing the same show 90%, but we're going to have just a few moments, like you mentioned, at the end of episodes or at certain moments where we just take him and tweak him a little bit. Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, what I was trying to do was intention, because if you can have a purity of intention, he can do the worst things in the world for comedy. But as an audience, you sense that he didn't do it in order to be cruel or to be a jerk. He's trying. So like the hardest one of all was Scott's tots. 
And Lee and Gene are not the guys you go to for this humanizing aspect <laughs> right, for, right, for one right. thing. But, um, and you know, obviously for comedy, right? I mean, and I think Ricky and Steven put it in the bones of the show, right? He, he does the wrong thing. The show knows what the right thing is, but he doesn't. And he's right. always doing the wrong thing. And that's like the bones. So it did freak out the writers a little bit because they were worried that it was going to be too far away. Um, but with Scott's Tots, I was like, okay, um, from his perspective, what he intended was he intended to be successful and to be a hero and to be a philanthropist and to make a big positive impact in these guys' lives. That was his intention. It was a good intention, you know? Right. It was. Yeah. It was a good intention. He, he didn't make it. Executed <laughs> he didn't handle terribly. it very well. Yeah. No, right. <laughs> but as long as you, like, to me, that was the key of that episode because, like, most of it was about the intention. And if you could get that right, you could get all your jokes, but you would still protect the character. And to me, this was a very King of the Hill type of thing because, like, in that episode that I mentioned, Hank's Unmentionable Problem, you know, it could have been all butt jokes the whole right. time. But we played it like a, a medical drama where the real conflict was Peggy saying, why don't you open up to me? You're going to die. I'm, and she's having dreams that his reticence is going to kill him and right. she's going to be a widow. You know, So we, we played this sort of realistic drama aspect. And then you got all your poop jokes that you wanted. You know? right. Right. But it didn't look like that was the point. Right, right. <laughs> so you had a little bit more leeway. And sort of the same thing. I think that, you know, it really hurt Michael that he wasn't able to be the guy he thought he was going to be when he made these promises. So you kind of got all your being a jerk comedy jokes, but you also were like, oh, <laughs> right, he's not right. the worst guy in the world. Right. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. 
and I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A few people have talked to you about one of your core ideas, which is the idea of truth and beauty. Yeah. That was my thing with Randall. I would yeah. go, truth and beauty, truth and beauty. Yeah. And what did that, what did that mean to you? Um, well, you know, to me, that was, I, I, I think that's some romantic poet. I'm not sure where that came from. Okay. Somebody like John Keats or something. I don't know. And I don't even know what he meant by it. But the way I used to use it with Randall was... That's what we're going for in the camera, right? Let the camera seek out truth. That's what it's trying to find. That's the point of a documentary. What's the truth? And also not like a cynical negative truth. Like also where where's the beauty? It's like another principle of photography of like a good photograph is, you know, a little sprig of weed coming through the cracked concrete or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, where are you going to do something that's a little bit inspiring, but find it in a truthful way out in the real world. Right. Well, Mike sure talked about it and you told a story about, um, a parking lot, an endless parking lot with lines and parking spaces. And in one crack, there's a little flower, ah, a little dandelion. He that's, said that. That's, yeah. that's funny. I just made the same. Yeah. Yes. I think that, that, you know, I'm, I like the notion of aesthetic, like what are you searching for in art? And, the Japanese have interesting aesthetics with a cracked pot. Did he mention that? No. I used to use that a lot. No. So I think it's called Wu. I'm not sure. Okay. But it's the notion of a perfect pot is okay, you know, and we in the West probably value a perfect pot, but a cracked pot where the crack suddenly makes you feel the history of the pot and the people who've used it in their family and have treasured it and kept it even with the crack in it. Like it suddenly cracks through, you know, it suddenly will, will touch you. It's those little details often of imperfections. That's like a, a, it's just a cool sort of philosophy. Yes. Yeah. I have uh, this so far off topic, but a number of years ago, my parents were moving out of their house and I went for a week and I was like helping them and throwing out all of this trash. And we go into like the corner of the closet in a guest room that no one ever slept in. And in the closet, there was a big piece of paper that was folded up and I, I unfolded it and it was a Kennedy poster that my dad had like handed out or seen or collected or whatever. And I remember saying to him, can I have this? And he's like, yeah, it's like all torn or whatever. Yeah. And I took it and I framed it and I took it to this place and they were like, oh, we can, you know, do this or that. And I was like, no, 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 the crack has to stay there. Yeah. And the wrinkle, the folded marks, just as lightly as you can mat this on something yeah. and enclose it because I want that history of it. I don't know that idea. Yeah. Well, also like, I mean, you know, I don't get too psychological, but you know, when you think about your dad, right, you're... So the, the relationship that you have with your father, the fact how old that they are 
and just the sense of like passage of time being important to that relationship and fragility of it and knowing that it may not be around forever. And I can completely see why a tear in your dad's poster right. adds to the right. the emotion of it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Totally. Um well, there's a lot about writing that isn't necessarily only about the office, but you know, like when you have a set of principles that you're trying to do for the show, right? If you're going to say, all right, I want to be realistic. I want to be relatable. Uh, you know, I want to be observational. If you're going to follow those principles, you're going to end up commenting on what's around you. And this to me goes back a long way. It isn't unique to the show necessarily, but like when I was on The Simpsons, which is, this is you know, it's a complete cartoon, but the way that one Simpsons writer won respect from another Simpsons writer when I was there was you did something super real. You had a line that just found, like it just came out of a teenager and it was just perfectly, you know, real to the situation. And somehow in contrast to the cartooniness of it, that always seemed to be like a cool thing. And then when I got to, King of the Hill, we used to do a lot of research. We would go to Texas. I'd take the writers to Texas every season and we'd fan out with our reporters' notebooks and we'd, you know, we'd try and dig up unique stories because I always felt like the shows that I really liked, the stories were original. Like something had happened to one of the writers, or, you know, they weren't just going like, well, what did the what did Cheers do? Let's do a version of that or something. You had to go out and do your own work and dig up your own stories. Right. Well, Mike sure told me even multiple years into the run of the show. And at this point we're a huge hit when we went to Scranton for the writer's convention, they did the same thing. You sent that, you said fan out, go, you know, go walk down this street, see what places you find. And they yeah. found restaurants and yeah, it was cool. We went to people. Port Richards and yeah. a lot of, you know, of course, like when we'd done that sh- when we did the show, the internet was a thing. So you could go online and search all the bars and, right. you know, sure, sure. Google map or whatever, see what they look like from the outside. But a lot of that happened while we were doing the show. And Phil was great at that. Phil Shea used to go to Scranton and have all these deals with different businesses and radio stations. And he'd come back with props for the set. They were all super authentic. Right. Well, and on that note, Going back a little bit, but why did you pick Scranton in the first place? Yeah, well, there were a lot of factors that went into that. So you wanted a place that was outside of a city, but they never went, and a place that was a little faded. And I felt the Northeast part was kind of important to me. Like it was a, an adaptation of an English show and something about the North. Northeast New England kind of mid-Atlantic felt more like England in certain ways. And Scranton has like a name that's kind of hard to say. It's a, it's a comedy word. It's got a K sound. It's eh, Scranton, you know. But the interesting thing was that when, you know, when I picked it, I talked to people at Scranton journalists. And there's this guy, Josh McAuliffe, worked at the Scranton newspaper. And he was really skeptical that we were going to be nice to Scranton. And I had to say to him, look, you know, I did King of the Hill. I went to Texas. I didn't make fun of them. I understood them. I like did the work to figure out what life was like for people in Texas. And the point is not to do cheap jokes, making fun of the environment. The point is to be specific and find a a world and you'll be okay. Don't worry. (laughs) Right. So it did work out nicely. Like I think we got to love Scranton by going to visit for that convention. And, and then it was, you know, amazing to come back and go to the ball field and everything. And I think it's been good for the the city. Yeah. And the other thing is like the city is so much more beautiful than, than, you know, our corner of Van Nuys that we were shooting in next to the granite cutter. I feel like we did a little bit of an injustice to how pretty the city is. Right. A lot of natural beauty. Very hard to recreate in Van Nuys. Yes. <laughs> Hello, Clem 
comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, we have a special, uh, we have a special guest that's coming in. Hey, how are you? Hi. Thank you so much for having fun with us, oh, sir. Look at you. You're the one that got this. Oh, isn't this awesome? Yes. Look at this. Years later. It's this cool. Is so cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna come back. All right. Well, you, you're welcome to or I'll join, join in. Yeah. Me. I'll join you for a minute. Yeah, Benny, sit down. Pull that microphone in front of you. Yeah, I'll join you for a minute. I didn't want to interrupt you guys. Um, did you say we're rolling? Okay. Just make sure that mic is close to you. Greg, when um what were your first impressions of Ben when you <laughs> met with Ben? Let me see. 
Well, you know, Ben, I like I grew up in New York. Right. right? So Ben has the vibe that I recognized that was fun for me. Like I could sense that he grew up in the same kind of environment of sort of brainy, you know, city life. And that was really fun. And he's got an enthusiasm, like uh, energy that I don't have. Like, we, <laughs> you know, when you're talking about, you know, the methodical <laughs> nature, right? you could also say maybe plodding uh, <laughs> of how I approach stuff. And Ben is like, you know, Mercury, like he zooms in and, but also very able to draw pieces in from all over the place and make a coherent vision. So I remember finding Ben very uh, cool and attractive to hang with. And and Greg was always my first choice, so that probably put me in a good position for Greg to view me nice. It's always, yes, it's always, always like good. It's always <laughs> like that. But I, and, and the thing, when you say that about the New York thing, and then we progress to Greg's father now plays bridge with my mother's best friends, you know, 50 years later, yeah. you know, so it's incredible. Yeah. Also, the experience that we both had in connecting on this show was like about the architecture of television and the architecture of the idea because so much about it was newly conceived, but we kept talking about with a shared love of television. We were not, we were people who love TV and we grew up loving TV, you know, and all of those elements drew us. And I think what was incredible about Ricky and Stephen in our initial dialogues that we had with them is that they also love TV. And American TV. And American TV and American cinema. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. Like when I grew up in New York on PBS, you'd get Monty Python or Faulty Towers or something and you go, oh my God, British TV is so great. You know, it's so smart. And they would only get our best stuff. They would only get like Friends and Seinfeld or whatever. And they grew up with the exact same feeling of like, oh my God, we can never compete. American TV is only the best, the best of the best. Right. And when I was expressing at some point to Ricky and Steven how much I was a fan of British TV, they were like, blah, most of it stinks, you know, because <laughs> they, they had, you know, they'd seen like all of the failures or whatever that they had been exposed to. And they, they were big fans of, of US TV. And I talked also, Greg, when I was talking to Brian about, the intellectual rigor that you have as a as a person and a writer, not just as a well, man. You respond of to that. That's the cool part. Because most of the time, you walk into a situation, people do not want that. No, they they want and and They're you and you right. surrounded the entire show with that. You know, it was an incredible group. Conan used to like so in the very beginning of my career. I was writing partners with Conan O'Brien, and he used to say to me, when you overthink, you start to stink. <laughs> That's good, yeah. Because <laughs> he, he kind of pegged me as an overthinker. Uh, so that, that would always go through my mind sometimes, but... Well, but purposeful. I mean, that's the yeah, thing that's that, a much nicer. I like the way you, yeah, you're describing no, yeah, it. Yeah, purposeful. I mean, that's part of... driven life. Yeah. Of our conversation was that we were creating something that was against network norms that was against how traditional sitcoms were constructed and the reason i say purposeful is because the decisions that you made were made specifically yeah. to move that forward well you also could out defend anyone who wanted to shift where we were going yeah i also feel like i was you, you caught me at the exact right time because i mean i was trying to add up the number of hours that i had in the you know how they talk about ten thousand hours like I had 10,000 oh, yeah, sure. hours before King of the Hill and I probably had another 15, <laughs> 20,000 hours, <laughs> you know, from that show, but I, I, I wasn't exhausted. You know, I was like, I definitely had a lot of good experience and a lot of thoughts about how I would do a live action show differently and still enough energy to try and. Yeah. And a it. hunger to do it yeah. because it's so different now, but you get kind of placed into a framework really quickly like oh you're great at animation or i was great at reality or right. you're, you know like especially when there's only four networks it's so different now it's it's crazy but also like if you have a particular sense of humor when i started there really wasn't any room for that sense of humor in half hour so like i i went to saturday night live because late night 
was where you had to do that kind of more niche, you know, humor. And then cartoons. Okay, well, you can kind of do it in cartoons. Cartoons are single camera right. form, but, um, you know, they seem to have their own thing. They weren't like your typical network sitcom. And then the, we had this little crack in in the selling world where cable had come out and HBO was big and the networks were like, well, what should we do? Maybe we should be more like cable. And, and I don't think we would have been able without having had a British show to hide behind. Right. right. It wouldn't have survived. Do you remember the marketing? That was to me hilarious because when the show. Oh, the way they try to sell it out yeah. of The Apprentice. Yeah. So we had, um, you know, we'd done the first season and the marketing department, all they knew was Will and Grace. So they took uh, single lines out of context, pop, 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 right? Uh, and the, that was the the first ad. And out of context, none of them played like jokes because right. of what we were talking about, right? We didn't do like set up punchline jokes. It was right. all behavior and context and acting and everything. And it was horrifying. You you look at these ads and you go, oh my God, we have the stupidest, un, most unfunny show in the world. And they were like, yeah, God, you guys are going down. <laughs> and, and I had to say, look, the frame has to be different. You got to blow up one moment and let it play. Otherwise we're doomed because it isn't a, you know, a highlight reel. Right. That's not how the show, I mean, right. now it kind of does actually. Now everybody loves the show. You could, you could make a great highlight reel out of moments. Sure. Well, because they know the character. Because they know the character. Everybody's so yeah. invested in what they're going to do. But when you introduce those characters. Right. To a broadcast platform, I mean, it was very yeah. so tricky. They would, cut, they would just like quickly, you know, cut to Michael saying, well, there's going to be downsizing as if it was a joke. As <laughs> they cut joke. to something else. <laughs> Um, Greg, what was the decision behind making the incredible casting decision to cast Ben as Isaac? <laughs> I probably asked him. Yeah, that's right. Well, the, the point that I, I was sort of making a joke, but that the typical agent Hollywood selling and that Ben and you are on the outside, sort of an unlikely pair, but I will never forget. We did this, um, panel at the Paley Festival. And we were being idiots, telling jokes and making the audience laugh. And then the moderator addresses a question to Ben. And Ben goes into, at the moment, seemed like five to seven minute speech about the history of comedy and tracing the office's roots. I mean, just incredibly encyclopedia knowledge-like dissertation on comedy in the show. And he stops talking and it's quiet. And you turn to the moderator and you go, well, and that's why he's my boss. <laughs> and just like that, like there was like, I don't know. It was just, the moment has resonated to me forever. Yeah. Uh, to me, that reminds me of Lauren Michaels. Like Lauren has this ability to put it all together and make a charismatic vision out of it. And part of that, I think with Ben is the overview, like uh, he's seeing the entire business, the history of the business, all these different genres inside the business, different types of shows, what's next, what's coming down the pike, you know, the overview is what most people don't have. And for him to be able to put it together, you're kind of like, I, I can't judge if it's real or not, but it's so, it's so inspiring. It's like, well, it has the to, future, you have you know? to, it's just so hard to get anyone to take any risk that if you haven't thought through every element of their organizations thinking about what you're trying to accomplish, you end up running into a wall, you know, and you look to align yourself with collaborators and partners along the journey who are willing to have that fight together. However, that works in partnership. Cause I look, I don't think I could have done. I mean, I, I mean, I, it was all I could do to make the show. The, if I had also had to, and all they wanted to do, defend it, and all they wanted to do was not make it? the show. Exactly, you know, and so that's where you have to be able to do that and put that energy in. But there's so many times I reflect back and I look just how unbelievably wonderful the people were in and around the show itself. Well, I had to like roam the executive suites. Uh, you know, I, know. I it was so uh, sad because because Ben would come back like covered in in blood and gore from being beaten. <laughs> you know, with all these business types, and he'd come to the set, and we we're you know, 
he, making making unbelievable really work. And I'm like, so I much. wanted to be in this. <laughs> that was yeah. the business I thought I signed up for. But oh my gosh, it was so great to be there. And then all the choices you made that we were able to defend. And I also talked about, and even our physical production apparatus that you created was transformative for broadcast TV. Like they didn't even understand what we were doing in our offices and our writer room, writers room. Right, some of those were practical. Yeah, that they were yeah. real and not really, you know, like they were so yeah. thrown by it all. Like we found that uh, we were kicked out of our season one situation. There there was not a lot of support in the beginning. And I think for them to No, have they, they didn't keep our rent. sets. Yeah, they right. didn't wouldn't keep it up at the time. I didn't even, you know, ever bring that up, but they didn't even they literally are like, no, we're not gonna cover the rent till we make this decision. Yeah. So we were out and you know, and we used the the parking lot. In uh, Hot Girl and stuff, and we'd established sure. what it looked like and everything. So we had to find some place where you could use the street and everything. And we looked all over Van Nuys. And the sad part was, most of the places we looked at, I remember, were too were, nice. Well, no, they were doing porn. <laughs> oh my god, literally. Do you that? <laughs> oh my no, god, yeah. I remember going to one place, and and I was like, well, this this looks sort of wholesome. What is this? And it was there was like a set with a a swing and a tree and stuff and and uh they were like no more porn more porn someone told me this again in terms of like creating that reality for the actors that we were going into an office so there was a little room off of set right behind the accountants where you could watch stuff that was being filmed where you had an office but that you built that out to look like an office from the outside so that the idea was that actors when they walked onto a soundstage, didn't walk onto a soundstage. They walked into a carpeted area with walls that was like an office. Do you remember that? Not wanting the actors to go onto a soundstage. I remember that on our original set, there was a very low, like low hanging lintel or whatever. Like the doorway was made of concrete or something and very low. And I would run from my office up to the set to give a note and I'd run back to watch it and I'd run back and forth and everything. And I cracked my head on that, on that low thing. And right. Then, remember that there was like a pad, somebody put a pad, pad saying up. like, yes, Greg Daniels Memorial yes. forehead pad or something like yes. that. Cause I kept smacking my head on that thing. Yeah. All those smacks knocked out any other memory <laughs> of why, why it was there. All right. Well, thankfully, it seems that the low-hanging lentil did not knock out all of Greg's memories of the show because we talked about it for, like, two more hours. So I'm going to save the rest for when we dive into the later seasons and ultimately the end of the show. In the meantime, we will be back next week with another interview with one of our amazing writers. Truly, as Paul Feig once said, this was an all-star Hall of Fame writing staff. I'm so happy we got to talk to so many of them. Uh, Thank you so much, listeners, for listening, which is what listeners do. And, uh, And have a great week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our associate producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. 
Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.